Welcome. Welcome to Sedaris. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like we do every week, we're going to turn to the Word of God to give us some insight into who we are, who God is, and not in that order. To know who God is is to know who we are, and so that's the way we'll do it. But um, if you don't have a copy of the Scripture, there are Bibles in the seat back in front of you that look like this. And uh, we're actually going to be in, in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And so that's on page 5, page 5 of the Pew Bible, so you don't have to turn far, um, so you can find it there. Uh, we'll kind of be jumping through chapters 6, 7, and 8, so you can just uh, keep your finger there as we get rolling. But I'm so excited to be uh, here in December. Can you believe it's December? And in December, uh, every year, there's a little-known holiday called Christmas, and you might notice the decorations. Thank you to the, the decorating team that put this together. Can we give them a round of applause? This is amazing. If you've been at Sedaris a while, what you can tell is that Dave and Ryan did not do it this year. It looks so good. So thank you. This is fun. This is a fun time of year. So as a church, we're in a season uh, that's referred to historically as Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And um, this is a time as a church, we always remember this, but it's a time where we focus in and remember the coming of Christ. That's what Advent means. It's a Latin word that means uh, the coming of Christ. And so um, we remember that Jesus was born into the world on the first Advent. And even more importantly than that, we look forward to his promised second coming or his second Advent. Okay, so we're doing both things at Christmas. Sometimes it seems like we're only focusing on remembering what's happened in history, but we're also looking forward to future history. We're asking God to give us a remembrance of something that will happen, and so we celebrate that Jesus is coming again as a full-grown king in the same way that he came humbly as a child king. So this year we're focusing on this idea of changing expectations, and what we've said is that um, the expectations that Israel had or the Jewish people had for this coming Messiah that was predicted in the Old Testament over and over and again, that God would send someone to save them, this expectation that they had wasn't met by the historical person of Jesus. But it wasn't that Jesus was somehow wrong, it was that their expectation was wrong. And for those who couldn't handle changing expectations, what happened is that they missed out on the true and the good and the beautiful blessings which accompanied the coming of the Christ. They missed out on it because they could not allow their expectations to be changed. They wanted what they expected instead of wanting God himself. And so too, we come to this season and we find that this is the case in our own lives. If we fail to allow our expectations of what God will do and is doing, if we fail to allow our expectations to meet the reality of that, we too will miss out on experiencing the fullness of the true and the good and the beautiful blessing that God has accompanying himself in the world. We'll miss it. So we have to learn how to let our expectations change with reality. Uh, my father, I had a good father, he taught me a few things. And one of the things uh, he taught me was he said, expectation and reality are on a graph kind of like this. Okay? Actually, they're more like this. 
The top line, that's your expectation. The bottom line, that's reality. And however big the gap is between your expectation and reality, you're going to live in frustration. And so what we have to do is time and time again die to our expectation and live in the reality. We have to do that as Christians, followers of Jesus, worshipers of God. We have to do that just as human beings. But if we continually say, my expectations are nothing at all, we'll live our life in frustration. It will get in the way of us experiencing the trueness of God in our life, because he's there. He just doesn't always meet our expectation as we think he should. So can you live in the changing expectations? Now today, we're going to look at the story of Noah. And I won't focus on the details of the flood and the ark and the animals and and all that detail, but instead I want to focus on Noah at an internal level, how Noah was expecting things to go, how Noah was experiencing God himself and see what we can learn as Noah had to navigate changing expectations. And one of the things we'll see today um, is that we'll come face to face with an unavoidable reality, a reality that replays itself again and again, at least for me in my life. The truth that I must come face to face with, that there is more wrong than just my circumstance. There's more wrong than just the people in my life. If I move to a new place, this is what I say in my head, if I move to a new place, then surely, and I, when I say surely, I mean I expect it with great, great anticipation and, and conviction that I'm sure things will change. That I won't struggle in the same ways that I did in the old place. But alas, I do. I say to myself, uh, if I just rid myself of that one person or that group of bad influences, then I know that things will be different. I expect with such a deep conviction that I won't slip into the same traps that I did before. That if I could just hit the reset button, then I will be and do much better the next time around. This This is what I do. But time and time again, season after season, place after place, people group after people group surrounding me, the one thing that remains the same always and forever is me. And the me in me seems to stay pretty consistent. My faults, my bad habits, my weaknesses, my procrastination, my tendency to give in to the same temptations no matter where I am or who surrounds me. What gifts? We had this experience? Felt this? Let's read God's word and see if he can help shed some light on this phenomenon and what to do when we encounter it. So I'm going to read Noah's story in fragments. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, I'm assuming that many of you are familiar with Noah's story. In the first five books of the Bible, God creates all things. Now, Just think about this. In the first five books, he creates the heavens and the earth. And if you've looked up lately at the night sky, a lot of stars up there. He's done a lot of work. He creates man and woman. He puts them in the garden. Then sin enters the world. People choose themselves in their own way, their own understanding of good and evil, instead of trusting God at his word. And so things go terribly wrong. And sin 
and evil and wickedness infect not only each and every human being, but also the ground and the world. And, and it builds up to a point where God becomes in, increasingly disturbed and he gets to the point where he comes to Noah and he, he says, Noah, there's barely any goodness in this world left, particularly in humanity. And so I'm going to send a flood and this flood is going to wipe that out and we're going to reset and we're going to start again. And so Noah builds an ark. You may have heard this. God says, bring animals two by two, fill the ark so that when the waters dissipate, life can continue. Because God doesn't hate what he's created. He loves it. It's very good. God makes a covenant with Noah. So let's just look at a few of the verses in that story that's going to help us talk about the things I want to talk about today. So Noah, chapter 6, starting in verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. And then he goes on and he tells Noah how to build this massive ship. And Noah goes about his work. Turn over now to chapter 8, starting in verse 15. Chapter 8, starting in verse 15. So the rain has come. Noah's finished the boat. The rain has come. And... This is what, and and the waters have receded. They found dry ground. This is what God says. Then God spoke to Noah. Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all of the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, that they may spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his wife, his sons, and his sons' wives came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. So, if you are a student of scripture, you might recognize some of that language. It's very, very similar, and it's meant to be, to what God says to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Be fruitful, multiply, he wants the birds and the the fish to multiply and fill the earth. So God is, in a sense, uh, resetting, restarting with Noah. That's what, that's what the story is telling us. And it's a wild story, right? I mean, it's wild. And remember, like, in Genesis, 50 chapters, and the first 11 we go through thousands and thousands of years. And then God zooms in on one particular family, the family of Abraham that he chooses. And so, don't get hung up in the details, okay? God is telling us a true story, but he's telling us in a way that he wants to so that we can learn what he wants us to learn, okay? And people have read this story and a lot of ink has been spilled, a lot of conversations have been had, and those aren't all necessarily a waste of time. But today, um, 
I don't want to get into these sorts of debates that people who love Scripture have about the story of Noah. You know, was the flood truly global or was it regional? Maybe it was just encompassing the world as they knew it because they obviously didn't have the knowledge that we have now about the size and the scope of the world and all this stuff. Um, other debates are how, how in the world could Noah build a massive ship like this by himself? Now, there is a clue to that question. I won't answer it to, uh, for you, but if you turn to chapter 6, verse 3, um, let me just read that for you real quick. It says this, And the Lord said uh, to Moses, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. Now, the great debate here is, is he saying that the lifespan, because if you read the Old Testament, people live much longer. Is he saying the lifespan will be shortened to 120 years? Or is he saying the flood will come in 120 years? That's when we're wiping out flesh as we know it. That's the debate. It could go both ways. I think he's saying in 120 years, the flood will come. So, that's quite a production runway for those of you who work at Boeing. Just imagine you had 120 years to finish that Dreamliner. Nobody would be quite as stressed. But there's some clues in there. This is a true story that's trying to sell, tell us something that's even more true than how do you build a giant boat in 120 years. Instead of asking these questions and trying to answer these questions from prehistory, I want to focus on the literary story of Noah. So the character development and what that teaches us about walking with God, because it says right here, and this is written thousands of years after Noah, that he walked with God. So they could have changed that once they saw how the story played out, because they're writing it all after the fact. But they say Noah walked with God. So what does this teach us about walking with God? And what does this teach us about getting serious about allowing God to change our expectations to the reality of who he is and what he's doing? So let's look at this. Who is Noah? What kind of guy? What kind of man is Noah? It says right here that Noah was a righteous man. Did you see that when you were reading? This is chapter 6, verse 9. He was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. What does that mean that Noah was righteous or blameless in his generation? Well, it certainly can't mean that he was perfect or sinless. Um, the Bible makes it very clear, no, not one is perfect. Not one human being is without sin. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and the glory that it is to be created in the image of God. We all fall short. So Noah was not perfect. That's not what God's saying here when he says he was righteous. But it could mean that in God's eyes, when compared to the others in his world, in his generation, that yes, Noah was righteous. He was righteous in the same way that King David was righteous. And we all know King David fell woefully short as well. God says of King David, a man after my own heart. That's what I think God is saying of Noah. That here, in a sense, he's blameless in his generation which is to say he's worthy for God to save him from the coming judgment. Not because he is perfect, 
but because he loves righteousness in the way God does. He loves it so much to seek after it in the way that God desires him to. So in that sense, he is righteous. Now, what does this righteousness entail? It seems to me that the best way to say it is that Noah tried. He tried. He cared enough to try to serve God when everyone else in his generation didn't try. He walked in step with God, or tried to, morally speaking, giving his praise and worship to this God. He tried to discern and hear from God and act accordingly. He tried. This indeed was received by God as love to the point where God says, you know what, humanity is worth saving. Uh, John Calvin says a few things about this, and I, I, they were so impactful to me, I wanted to share them with you, so I'll read them to you. I think we'll have them on the, on the board as well. You can read along. He writes this. They, speaking of all of us who God considers to be righteous, they are righteous because they have a disposition and desire to give themselves to God. Although they limp along and sometimes stumble, while still far from their goal, their disposition and their desire is to give themselves to God. Why? Because our Lord, by his paternal kindness, pardons them for what is lacking in them and does not consider it. Of course, I love this quote. God accepts their work as if they were unimpaired. Because of what? Their disposition and their desire. Noah had a disposition and a desire to give himself fully to God. Calvin goes on to say, Even though the faithful are weak and are often distracted by many desires, even though the devil encourages them to do evil and they are often shaken, and even though they are held back from walking with the bold courage they should, there is no hypocrisy in their hearts because their sovereign desire is to please God. They grieve over their sins. They hate and condemn their sins. In the word, or sorry, in a word, if they had a choice, their chief desire would be to be remade in God's righteousness. If they could choose, they'd be remade in God's righteousness. No one else in Noah's generation would have sincerely chosen to be remade in God's righteousness. They loved their sin. They desired it. They wanted their own way, and they wanted it now. Not Noah. He had a choice. His choice would be to be given God's righteousness in full. And be able to pronounce all, sorry, renounce, I think that's a typo, renounce all their vices and all the desires of the flesh. That is how the faithful are. Therefore, God has to be infinitely kind to his people when he receives that love they possess through perfection, even though perfection does not exist and cannot be found in any living creature. If we say a hundred times that a man tries as hard as he can to serve God, he must still take refuge in God's mercy and confess that he is a poor sinner. So, why would God call Noah righteous or blameless? 
Not because he was perfectly righteous. He always did the right thing. Not because he was actually blameless. But his heart had the disposition and the desire to love God, serve God, obey God. So how do we know that? (laughs) Well, we just look at his life. He faithfully obeyed God for 120 years, walking in faith, following the close, precise detail God gave him to build a boat in the desert. Think about this. What kind of faith, what kind of trust, what kind of disposition of the heart would it have to be for 120 years to build a boat in the desert? Here's what it means. It means that he loved God's word more than man's approval. For 120 years, he loved God's word more than man's approval. Do you think that he was ever mocked? Do you think that he was ever ridiculed? Do you think he was ever scoffed? Of course he was. All the while, everyone else in his generation ate, drank, was super merry, took what they wanted, when they wanted. They were thieves of God's glory. And yet Noah patiently built his boat in the desert. This is what it means to be righteous. To love God. To seek and try to obey him, even though you will fall short. And Noah did that. Noah did that. Incredible, incredible dedication of this man of God. Now, in the end, what happened? God's promises turned out to be true. The rain did come, and it didn't stop. And Noah was ready. And one of the things I, I just want to pause on here, because I think, I've always struggled with this story. This seems sort of harsh by God. Um, God's judgment is never harsh. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. But in Second Peter, the Apostle Peter in the New Testament writes about Noah and says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Or you could translate it, a herald of righteousness. Which is to say what? He spoke about the goodness of God. Now just imagine, for 120 years you're building a boat in the desert. You might imagine some people would be asking why you're doing that. And I think it's made clear by Scripture that Noah, he didn't keep it a secret. Though these were probably his enemies who mocked and scorned him. He told them, he heralded about God's righteousness, about the coming judgment on sin and evil and wickedness. He told people. He probably said, build your own boat. It's coming. And they said, yeah, right. So God patiently waited, and, and Noah proclaimed the righteous judgment of God that's coming. But the people wouldn't listen. And sure enough, Noah was right. And everyone else shown a liar. Now what would you expect that Noah was expecting what happened next? After 120 years of righteously obeying and preaching of God's righteous judgment against evil and sin, preaching of God's goodness and his desire to be with his creation, and then it comes and it actually happens and God's prepared a way of escape, and Noah is saved, and his family is saved, and he actually watches the sin of the world washed away by water. 
What was he expecting? I think he's probably expecting that things would be different. That things would get easier. That perhaps sin itself would be washed away. It wouldn't be unfair for him to presume this. It seems like that's what God told him was going to happen. So he would expect that post-flood life would look a whole lot different than pre-flood life. Of course, right? Yeah. Free of sin, free of disappointment, free of evil. For why else would God have brought a flood to wipe away Cain's descendants? Evil and sin and those rebellious against God, of course. So we're entering a new perfect Eden he would have expected. But, alas, Noah's expectations were wrong. In a bitter and difficult learning lesson, Noah had to have his expectations changed. Let's read about it. Turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. Chapter 9, verse 18 says this. Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. Noah, as a man of the soil, began by planting a vineyard. So this is after the flood, after coming off of the ark. And he begins to rebuild his life. And he plants a vineyard. Verse 21. He drank some of the wine. He became drunk. And uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, who is the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem Shem and Japheth took a cloak And placed it over both of their shoulders and walked backwards and they covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned away and they did not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his drinking and learned what his youngest son had done to him, he said this, Canaan is cursed. He will be the lowest of slaves to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Let God extend Japheth. Let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem. Let Canaan be Shem's slave. Now Noah lived 350 years after the flood. And Noah's life lasted 950 years before he died. Wow. That's not what I expected. That's not what Noah expected. What in the world is going on? Did God's plan fail? No. Noah expected the wrong thing. Now we don't know if Noah thought post-fall, Maybe this wine won't get me drunk. He was wrong. He thought, maybe my sons will be spared from the sin of the world. No. 
And so what we see here is some changing expectations. The first, Noah found out that sin cannot be removed by mere washing because the heart is the problem. The heart is corrupt and therefore needs total replacement. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, those who thought they were righteous in God's sight. He said to them, Hello, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also become clean. Same problem. You can't just wash the outside. If the inside is dirty, then it corrupts everything else. So Noah discovered that the same sin that lived inside of Adam and the same sin that lived inside his enemies and his mockers and his scoffers pre-flood, that same sin actually lived inside of him. Like it was confirmed that the reason he time to time fell into drunkenness wasn't because of everybody else, but because of his own heart. And so Noah had to come to realize that God's rescue plan must actually be way bigger and much deeper than even the waters of a great flood. This is what he came to realize. That's the reality, that sin is not gone, but it lives on, even in him, the righteous one who was blameless in his generation. Could you imagine that? So what Noah had to realize is that we don't just need a reset, we need a new seed. A new seed, we talked about this a few weeks ago. A seed that comes from outside the genealogical lineage of Adam. That new seed is what we celebrate at Christmas. The seed of a new kind of life that God placed into the world through the belly of Mary. And at that first advent, we see the coming of the God-man Jesus Christ, who was both son of God and son of mankind. He bridged the gap. He was fully God, therefore untainted by the sin of Adam, but also fully man as the offspring of the Virgin Mary. This new seed would then grow up into the man that Noah couldn't become. Unlike Noah, this God-man, Jesus Christ, would not fall into the temptations of drunkenness or greed or self-indulgence or any other kind of dishonor that comes with sin. But Jesus would live the perfect life that Noah couldn't live. Even in the face of the brokenness of the world. Even in the face of the corruption of the world. So the Bible says Jesus was tempted in every way. The world was just as corrupt and yet he lived with no sin. Therefore, becoming the true and only sacrifice that could take away the sin of the world. Something that the floodwaters were never capable of doing. This was something that God always knew. 
something that Noah tried to sustain yet failed. His efforts for righteousness could never do. His good works could never do, uh, could never accomplish. His effort to try to please God could never bring to fruition. God always knew that would be the case. It's crazy. He always knew. So why would he put the world through that? Why would he put Noah through that? Because he wanted to make it perfectly clear to Noah and to us that there is only one way to salvation. And it isn't through the washing away by water or the removal of bad people and and sin. It's only by the washing through the blood of Jesus. The flood story makes that perfectly clear. Only by the washing through the blood of Jesus, through his death, his sacrifice in our place, only by the flood of God's punishment poured out on Jesus in our place can our sin be taken away. That's the only way to clean the inside of the cup. Only by that judgment poured out on the head of Jesus, by his sacrifice, can we be cleansed of all iniquity. It's the only way. I think that's one of the main reasons we have the flood story accounted for us in the way we do. So that we don't go on thinking, well, what if God just removed all those really bad people from our world? We know what would happen. History would repeat itself. We need something bigger and better and purer to wash us clean. See this? That's a changed expectation. So with Noah's expectation now changed, realizing that sin was here to stay even after the flood, and he realized that he couldn't get rid of his own sin unless God did something else, we too can realize that moving to a new place, just finding the right situation, having the perfect circumstance, that won't save us either. We need something else. We need someone to get rid of something that we don't even fully understand, just like Noah didn't fully understand what was going on. We need the coming of Jesus, just like Noah needed the coming of Jesus. And he comes to us personally by hearing the gospel, the good news, and us turning to him by faith and receiving it, he sends the Spirit to begin a work in us that will only be completed when he comes a second time. And when he comes a second time, Scripture says he's coming with a flood of fire. And he will make that perfect world that Noah hoped for and expected, just not when Noah expected it. That's what we need. That's the new expectation that we have to come to terms with. So having said that, when we come into the world now, waiting for the second coming, knowing that sin is not gone, knowing that we have this unavoidable conflict with our own sin and with the sin all around us, what do we do? How do we engage? That's a great question to be asking yourself. 
Because you could read this and be like, man, this is bleak. So, should we be indifferent to sin? Both the sin in us and the sin around us? Because it's unavoidable? So let's just not focus on it or think about it because, look, not even Noah could escape it. Or should we embrace it? I've heard this. Should we embrace sin as if it's a part of God's intermediate plan to my fulfillment? I've heard this. Saying God wouldn't have allowed sin to remain if it wasn't part of how he blesses me now when I wait for him to come again. I've heard Christians say this. Like, yeah, I'm broken, but God blesses that brokenness and baptizes that brokenness because he wants me to be happy until he comes again. I've heard this. Is that what we do? Or should we do something else? If sin is still here, how do we respond to it? Again, I think this story teaches us something. Of course, Noah sins. He falls into drunkenness. He's laying naked in his tent, and his son, youngest son, Ham, finds him. And you could read this story, and you could be like, what? Ham gets cursed for this? What's going on? And you'd be in good company. Scholars throughout history have said, there mu- this must be a euphemism for something else. Like, some of the leading candidates are, maybe uncovering his father's nakedness meant sleeping with his mom. And that's what happened. Maybe. Maybe it means something even worse, that he did something with his father while his father was drunk. Maybe. But you see, the reason we have all these potential explanations is that it seems like Ham's getting a raw deal. That was kind of funny, but I wasn't trying to be funny. Just let me pause on that. Seems like he's getting cursed for something he had nothing to do with. But he does have something to do with it. See, this is what happens when sin enters the world. So he isn't the one that initiated the sin, but he responded to his father's sin. Sin has this way of corrupting everything that it touches. And I think this is why we have the story told, where there's one brother who sees his father's nakedness, and what does he do? He doesn't cover him up. He runs to tell his brothers, look at dad, this righteous father of ours, this blameless in his generation. Look at him now. He's laughing at him. He's mocking his father. He's dishonoring his father. He sees his father's sin and he has no compassion. His brothers do. His brothers hear this gossip and they say, what are you doing, Ham? And they go and they cover up. They don't even look at their father. They cover him up because they understand the power of sin. They understand what's happened. They understand the new expectations are coming alive in them. Sin's not gone. Which means it's not gone in us either. Which means that if I don't think about how to respond to my father's nakedness, I too might fall into sin. And that's exactly what Ham does. And his son, Canaan, becomes cursed. And if you know the story of Israel, Israel will one day take the land back from the Canaanites, which are the descendants of this Canaan, Ham's son. 
It's a brutal story because it's not Ham who initiated it, but he responded. He responded with dishonor. He responded with mockery, and he too fell into sin. And it creates all of these unheaven-like dynamics for the rest of time where there's power now at play, there's curse and blessing. This is always what happens when sin enters the world. It's a brutal story. To mock his so-called righteous father who trusted God for 120 years and built a boat in the desert. To celebrate his father's sin that he now has power over his father to share and gossip to his brothers and say, come, come, let's see old righteous dad over here. What does this tell us about how to live now, what to expect now when we encounter sin? Are we a culture Or are you an individual who mocks sinners for their struggles? Do you begin to revel and joke at their misfortune brought on by sin and brokenness? Do you celebrate their sin with them instead of rebuking, instead of shedding a tear over that sin? If you do, the result will be the same as Ham. You will experience curse in your life. On the other hand, like Shem and Japheth, when a culture or an individual begins to be saddened by the sinner's struggle, when they renounce that sin and are honest with it about its destructive tendency, when they help to alleviate the consequence of that sin, even though they realize that it's brought about by that person's agency, when they come to the aid of the brokenness, the result will be the blessing of God. That might not be what you expected God to teach you, but he teaches us very clearly. So I want to give you two final applications of this. The first is regarding Shem and Japheth. These are the two brothers who acted and received a blessing. What can we learn from their ability to follow the reality of the changing expectations that have come into the world? that sin will inevitably endure and therefore they have to be very careful with how they interact with it so that they too don't become cursed like their brother. Well, I think we learned from them what we also learned from Jesus. Jesus modeled perfectly the response to sin. And he taught us. First, We learn from Jesus to have compassion on sinners, especially 
when they are experiencing the consequence of their sin. So the first response is compassion. Then there comes a time for rebuke. They waited, they covered their, their, their father and waited for him to wake up. They didn't take advantage of the moment to say, I told you so, or look at you, dad. They waited. They had compassion. Second, you see this from Jesus as well, they have no part in the sin. Because compassion doesn't require tolerance through participation. Compassion doesn't require tolerance through participation. Oftentimes we say, I would like to be compassionate towards those who have stumbled into sin. And the way to be compassionate is to participate with them in it so that they don't feel so bad about their struggles. I do that. These two brothers have no part of the sin of their father or their brother Ham. But they show great compassion. Third, Jesus taught us to take sin very seriously. And therefore, to be careful not to laugh off sinful behavior. You never see Jesus laughing off sinful behavior. Oh, you, you actually have eight husbands. He's not laughing that off. He shows great compassion. This seems to me, at least for me personally, this third one seems to be the hardest one for me to avoid. I often find myself laughing with the sin of the world. Whether that's through recounting a drunken story from the night before, even if I wasn't the one drunk. Maybe it's laughing along with a crude joke or quoting my favorite comedy movie or comedian whose, to be honest, comedy is all about the sin of the world. I do that. Man, I was convicted this week. I do that. I like to laugh, but I'm often laughing at the expense of someone's sin. What does Jesus teach us? Rather than laugh with them or at them or join in, he says pray for them. Pray for them. And not just your friends who fall into sin. He also says, hey, don't laugh, revel, celebrate in the sin of your enemy when it takes them down. He says pray for them too. Whoa! But they were... They were mocking me. They told me their way was the way to life, and look at them now. Jesus says, pray for them. Don't laugh at them. Don't celebrate their downfall. I like to think Noah, as the waters flood, was not laughing at his enemies, but crying out for God to save them and help them. So sad for them. Do we do the same? Are we righteous like Noah and, of course, like our Savior Jesus? 
Lord, help us to not fall into these traps like Ham. Application two. If you are hoping in Jesus alone, sorry, excuse me. If you are not hoping in Jesus alone for yourself or for this world, your hope is in vain, friends. It is. Even a resetting flood could not fix the problem of our world. We need an invasion from heaven. Not just some new or other worldly kingdom or worldly ruler or the removal of some worldly kingdom or worldly ruler. We need something utterly other. Something holy. Something set apart. Something divine. We've seen what a resetting flood will do, and it didn't work. We need something more. That's what this story tells us. We need something more. Well, what could be more than that? We need something more. So if you find yourself saying things on a macro level like this, pay attention. If you find yourself on a macro level saying things like this, I think the world could just be fine if... We just got rid of those Russians, or we just got rid of those Wall Street crooks, or we just got rid of those right-wing fundamentalists, or we just got rid of those extreme progressives, or we just got rid of the patriarchy, or we just got rid of radical feminism, or we just got rid of organized religion. If you find yourself saying that, you're going to end up right where Noah did. Drunk. Alone. With a world that looks exactly the same, with just some other thing that replaced the thing that got wiped away. That's what's going to happen. You're wrong. You need to change your expectation. Something equally evil, something equally destructive, will fill in the gap. That's the story of human history, not the story of now we've reached utopia. It's turning into not a very joyful Advent sermon, but it's honest. I hope the good news is Jesus is here. Okay. Now, that's a macro level, but you can also do this on a micro level. On a micro level, you can have a little conversation with yourself. So if you find yourself on a micro level saying something like this, pay attention. If that one coworker just left, then I won't have anything to gossip about. You're wrong you'll find somebody new. If I just get married and leave singleness behind, then I won't struggle with lust. You're wrong. If this political figure leaves office, then I won't have to be a political troll on the internet. Lie. If I just get out of this old house into a nicer, newer house, then I won't cover my covet my neighbor's house. B.S. If once I get through this stressful project at work, then I'll stop drinking so much. Then I'll stop smoking so much. No, you won't. Now that can feel very bleak. (laughs) But what this story tells us and Scripture tells us is, no, the removal of something alone will not save you. You need to add back God's very presence in your life. 
And then you can start to experience some freedom from the gossip, some freedom from the trolling, some freedom from the lust, some freedom from the drinking or the smoking or the coveting because Jesus shows up in your life. That's the promise of Scripture. Now, it won't make it go all the way, but you can have power over it. But it's not coming just from changing your circumstance or removing the evil thing or person or influence. It only comes by adding the righteous presence of Jesus Christ in your life. That's the truth. So you need new expectations so you're not so frustrated. You need to expect that you will still struggle with the same thing. But with the power of Jesus, that struggle will feel less oppressive. And you need to stop pretending like if you just, on a macro level, had these things, then we live in a utopia. We won't. Until when? Until Jesus comes again. Brutal truth. But honesty breeds freedom. Some of you need to stop beating yourself up so much because you thought, like Noah did, that you'd never sin again. You will. And you need to run to the foot of Jesus, to the foot of the cross. This is what Noah realized. This is how his expectation had to change. It wasn't just the world around him that was broken and sinful, it was him as well. And coming to that devastating realization in both himself and his sons led him into a newer and truer sense of reality that only God can save him. We need this divine plan to become our new plan as well. This plan that we don't fully understand, that Noah couldn't fully understand, that God would send a savior, that he would come as the redeemer, He needed to accept that. And when he did, he found some freedom. He lived 350 more years, so probably got some sort of a handle on his his drinking problem. Where does this redeeming come from? Jesus talks about it. We don't have time to go into it. You can look this up. Write it down. Matthew 24, 37 Matthew 24, 37, Luke 21, 25 to 28. And just read everything in the context. These are times where Jesus talks about his second coming. He says, the Son of Man, that's himself, fully God, fully man, so he's Son of God and Son of Man, the two titles he uses. He says, I'm coming again. And when I come again, I want you to stand tall, be brave, be resilient, and look up. Because... Quoting Jesus, your redemption is drawing near. That's what we do in the face of sin when we realize it's not going away anytime soon. We stand tall, we be brave, and we're resilient, and we look up because we know our Redeemer is coming. That's what Jesus said in those passages to do. So when Noah awoke from his drunken stupor, found out both his sin remained in himself in his own heart, and he saw his son sin in Ham, he knew that he still needed saving, and he needed this personal redeemer. And I do think Moses looked up, and he began to rebuild the world, but he looked up, knowing that his redeemer must come for him, knowing that God's promises hadn't left him, that his sin hadn't left him beyond saving, that the covenant through the rainbow was still intact, that God was with him still even though he fell short after the flood. He knew God would redeem. And we now know this Redeemer's name. His name is Jesus. 
He has come once and for all to deal with sin. That's his first advent. And he's coming a second time. That's his second advent to usher in what the flood could not. A kingdom free from sin, death, rebellion. He's going to clean the inside of the heart and the outside. The first coming cleaned the inside and the second coming will clean the outside of the cup. And we will get to live in that expectation that wasn't wrong that Noah had, but was just mistimed. That longing you have to be totally free, it's not wrong, it's just mistimed. God wants to give it to you, and he will give it to you, and that's why we pray for the coming of Jesus. Oh, long-expected Savior, we're about to sing that. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We expect all these things, and we want you to come. And so if you aren't praying and singing that song when we sing it in a second here, with your full heart, with your full desire, with your full disposition, ask God to give you a new heart, a new disposition, a new desire, so that you can sing those words, Oh, come, thou long-expected Savior. Redeem your people. Clean the inside of my cup and the outside cup of this world. Clean it all, Lord Jesus. Until you come to that realization that you cannot clean it on your own, that no amount of good works, that no amount of removing the bad people will fix the problem, but only the coming of Jesus, until you get to that point, you will never experience the fullness of the blessing that comes with knowing God. And I want that for you. I want you to sing, come that long-expected Jesus with full assurance that it will happen because his first coming already happened and that now you can experience the removal of guilt, the removal of shame, the removal of dishonor that you experience when you sin. So let's pray.